in 1 Samuel 26, we have this encounter between David and Saul, very similar to chapter 24, where David has an opportunity to kill Saul, but restrains his hand and uh, then confronts Saul with that fact. Remind you of that just so you understand uh, the setting here. I'll be preaching from verses 21 through 25, but I'll back up just a little bit beginning in verse 17. Then Saul knew David's voice and said, is that your voice, my son David? David said, it is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done or what evil is in my hand? Now, therefore, please let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord saying, Go serve other gods. So now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. David answered and said, Here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his unfaithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, So let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. What are we to make of Saul's repentance? He heard David's voice, and he heard his words to Abner. He heard that once more David had spared his life. And in hearing this, David's words sink in. So once more, Saul responds to David with, a level of contrition. I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. What are we to make of these words? What are we to make of Saul's repentance? Well, By way of introduction, let me just observe that 
we have the whole story of Saul. And we know that Saul's repentance proves to be false. We've noted over and over again that Saul is a tragic character because he is surrounded by the means of grace. He is surrounded by the word of God, by by godly men and women who would would be an example of, of what it means to repent, to fear the Lord, and to follow after him. But over and over again, the path of Saul is selfish and turns more and more away from God. We then can ask the question, what do we make of Saul's repentance? We can ask it in a way that leads us to to say, what does repentance mean? What does it look like? We know that Saul's repentance is false because his words never turn into action. And it's that aspect of repentance that I want to meditate on today, that true repentance, a true change of heart, must be demonstrated by a new pattern of behavior. And so it's going to lead us to, uh, uh, to, to the call that repentance does make on our lives. To not just repent in our heart and in our words, but that we would practice actions or works that are befitting of repentance. This will be proved to be a helpful, uh, a helpful application for us. Repentance that is applied to us personally, but that can also be applied in the context of the conflict that we have with one another. Let's first look at Saul's words of repentance. And as I pointed out, there, there really is much to commend Saul's words. Matthew Henry observes this, that we have reason to think that according to the mind he was in now, that Saul meant what he had said. His words show aspects that we can apply to genuine repentance. He acknowledges his sin. He, in fact, uses the word sin, which doesn't often happen for those who aren't repentant. In fact, in the first encounter, Saul admitted that David was more righteous than he was and kind of implies that maybe he had done something wrong, but he doesn't name it. Here, Saul says, I did sin against you. In other words, he didn't explain it away or minimize it, or he doesn't try to shift the blame from himself, kind of like saying like this, oh, David, I'm sorry you were offended you've heard that before. I'm sorry you took offense by my trying to kill you, (laughs) as if it was David's fault that he was offended. That's blame shifting from the actual offense. No, David didn't do that, did he? He said, I sinned. Not only that, he acknowledges foolishness. He called it foolishness and that he had erred exceedingly. The fool 
acts against God, as if he doesn't exist or that he has no power in our lives. He also acts against his well-being. And Saul seems to, uh, to, to own that. David has said, oh, I haven't sinned against you. Why are you chasing me? You're like, a, a, like, like trying to look for a flea. I don't know if you've ever done that, but a flea is tiny. If you were to go out into the wilderness looking for a tiny flea, it's like, that's a fool's errand. That's what Saul was doing. He was chasing after one man, a righteous man, for no reason at all, a wasted, foolish effort. Saul owns that. And Saul commits to change his ways. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more. This certainly has certain marks of repentance. Because repentance is not just being sorry for the sin. It's not just being sorry for being caught in our sin. There's a grief over it that commits to change directions. And Saul's contrition here has marks of genuine repentance. So what are we to make of it? Well, as I've already said, time will prove that Saul's words were false and his repentance was empty. But interestingly, David didn't know it at this point, which provides us an opportunity to think about how in interactions with one another, how do we react when there are sins and repentance voiced to us? David didn't know Saul's heart. This has been made plain already that God looks on the heart, but man looks on the outward appearance. This was said of David when he was chosen to be anointed as king. And for the moment now, David didn't know Saul's heart. He had gained a hearing by his godly activity, by his his daily practical godliness, what I called street cred last week. That was what David had wanted. He wanted to gain that hearing. He had come to to plead with Saul to, to stop pursuing him. And even more than that, he came and, and was pleading for Saul's soul, pleading that he would repent and turn away from his sinful behavior. And Saul listened. He had gained, uh, uh, David had gained a hearing here. And so David seemingly gives room for that real repentance to take place. And he does so by accepting the words that Saul speaks. He accepts them for what they were, leaving the heart work of repentance in God's hands. And I say that so that you might think of of repentance and the transacting of repentance in the midst of conflict, to think of this as something of a first step in, uh, in transacting repentance. When someone has sinned against you, 
and they come to you with such words of repentance. The first step is to pray and open your heart to the possibility that God is genuinely working such repentance in that individual. And if repentance is offered, accept it and grant forgiveness. This is what Jesus has taught. In the New Testament, he says, if your brother, if your sister sins against you, you forgive them. Even if he comes more than seven times, right? The disciples asked, wow, that's hard, uh, hard teaching. Uh, how often should we do it? Should we forgive them seven times? As if that was unthinkable. And Jesus blew their minds by saying, no, 70 times seven times. In other words, when your brother or sister repents, you must forgive. And I also say this because in the midst of conflict, it's very easy to become blinded to God's working in the midst of this. You may be so hurt by that sin. You may be so angry because of that sin that you will not be satisfied with any confession of sin. And so when someone comes and says to you, I have sinned against you, will you forgive me? That you respond, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. But a first step is to remind you that you are not God. You aren't. You do not know what's in the heart of that person who's coming to you. You don't know their motives. It may be that God will use this conflict, as gut-wrenching as it is, that he will use it to bring about a glorious change in that other person's life and in yours. David's response leaves room for this because part of repentance is to seek forgiveness. And as a first step, David left room for that. But the text goes on and it helps us to understand a little bit more of the contours of repentance. I think of it as a, as a, a, a map, that uh, a topographical map, that as you look at it, you can see what a mountain looks like or where a road goes. And this text provides uh, something of a map to show you the lay of the land. And the next point on the map is to acknowledge that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. And it comes through in the fact that David declined Saul's invitation to return. Saul had, uh, had voiced his repentance. Uh, he said that he sinned. He asked David to return, a commitment that he wouldn't harm David again. And David didn't act on that. Instead, he he offered to give Saul's spear back. 
But David shows prudence in his answer, a prudence that shows the consequences of sin. And in this case, the consequences were, were deep and lasting. Think of how Saul's sins had affected David. They had destroyed his reputation. They had destroyed his standing in the nation of Israel. His sins had shattered the relationship that seemingly had started off on such a good, good foot. Even now, Saul calls David his son, but, but his sins had, had wreaked havoc havoc on that relationship. They had destroyed and betrayed David's trust. Now these things could be rebuilt, but it would not happen overnight because sins have consequences. Now, before I go forward, you need to know that that sins come in many different shapes and sizes. All sins are guilty of God's wrath and curse, but there are sins that uh, are, are grievous. And there are sins that love may cover. I really uh, am, uh, am drawn to what Peter says in chapter four of his first letter. He, he says that and he's dealing with, with, with a church and helping them learn to live out their faith and their relationship with each other. And he says that love covers over a multitude of sins. And that's not what we're dealing with here today, uh, but that ought to be kind of a default in our, in our relationship with each other. It ought to be that, that the love of Christ that you have received would lead you to overlook offenses for the most part, especially when those offenses are, are slight. But there are other sins that are more grievous, and that's what our text is dealing with today where repentance is needed and uh, where forgiveness uh, needs to be transacted between individuals. And Saul's sins fall in this category. They are grievous and the consequences are far-reaching. And knowing this helps you to understand how, how repentance leads to actions. And I say this because of another approach that I've, I've observed when it comes to uh, interpersonal relationships and repentance. It's approached this way. Someone says, well, I said I'm sorry. I repented. You've forgiven me. Therefore, things should go back to exactly the way they were. And that's certainly the goal of repentance and reconciliation. If you'd like to read a little more on this, the book called The Peacemakers walks through some of this. And what what is missed in this approach towards repentance and reconciliation is that sin 
does indeed have consequences. Since damage has been done, the work of restoring that relationship takes time and prayer and grace and patience. It takes effort to change what has been destroyed and to rebuild that. And here we can apply it again very practically to interpersonal relationship and thinking about what repentance looks like. If you are the offender, if you have sinned against your spouse or your brother or sister, etc., you must repent. You must confess your sin to God and to the one that you have offended. Don't make excuses for it. Don't minimize it. Don't try to shift the blame from yourself. Use the language of sin. Ask for forgiveness. And then when forgiven, pray and work patiently to rebuild what has been torn down by that sin that you have confessed. That is hard work. It does take patient effort and it takes grace and faith to see that, that, that God has dealt so with you and that your prayer is that the one you've offended would also deal that way with you, that you would be patient to rebuild what has been destroyed. And if you are the one offended, make room for that repentance. Make room for God to be at work in this way. And when it comes, when your brother or sister comes to you and asks your forgiveness, grant it wholeheartedly. Grant it in using the language of forgiveness, not by brushing it off. Oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. No, speak the words of forgiveness. I do forgive you for what you have repented of. And then realizing the damage that has been done, realizing the consequences, pray and work patiently yourself. Again, giving room for this repentance to bear good fruit because God is at work in you too. And when forgiveness is granted, your prayer and your responsibility is to commit to not dwell on that sin, to not bring it up over and over again because you just add to the consequences that drive you apart. Pray and work patiently to rebuild what has been torn down. How do we do that? Well, David's response leads to a third principle, a third point on the map, uh, so to speak, that I've called works befitting repentance. And I use that phrase because it comes from the Bible. That's always safe, isn't it? Works befitting repentance. Paul uses it in Acts 26. He describes his gospel ministry. There he called Jews and Gentiles to repent, to put their faith in Jesus Christ, and to do works befitting of repentance. 
And what, uh, what Paul is speaking of is that our faith is a faith that turns to Christ away from sin. This is the message of John the Baptist, isn't it? He uses the same phrase. And I read this from Matthew 3. This time, John is speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders who came out to him to be baptized. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. And John calls them a brood of vipers, vicious snakes. They were professing or speaking words of repentance while repentance was far, far from what they were doing. He calls them to flee the wrath to come, that they must repent, and that that repentance necessarily includes action. He calls them to do the works that are befitting of repentance, that are worthy of repentance, as some translations put it. And we need to be very careful here. Salvation is not based on works. Salvation is not based on being good enough. It's not, it's not based on, on, the, uh, on the purity of your repentance or the number of works of repentance that you do. We cling to the precious promise that salvation is by the grace of God alone, that is received by faith in God alone. It is not by works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And yet, saving faith is never standing alone. It will always be accompanied by good works that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. So repentance will always be accompanied by works that are befitting of that repentance. Works that demonstrate that you are grieved by what you have done and how it has offended God and man and grieved for the consequences that have taken place and a commitment to turn away from those sins and to put on new righteousness in its place. And David's answer to Saul lays some of that out. Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and get it. It's a gracious offer by David that communicates that he was leaving in peace. We might say today he was burying the hatchet. He, he had not sought out war with Saul, but he was ending it. I have no desire for this to go forward. Here is your spear. Take it. But on the other side of the camp, you long for something more from Saul, don't you? <laughs> my, my heart aches for him. I, I long to hear something like this from Saul. David, I cannot take my spear back. 
can't. I've sworn not to seek your harm. I've sworn not to take up the spear against you. You keep it or destroy it. I have work of repentance to do. I, I must go and repent before the Lord. Just as you have said, I, I must offer my own sacrifice to the Lord. I have work to do. You keep the spear. We don't hear that from Saul. We don't see works befitting of repentance. David goes on to appeal to God again. He asks God to judge the situation. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. This is the lesson that he learned with Naboth and Abigail. David learned that his times are in the Lord's hands. And so are Saul's. He learned that he wasn't God. He learned that he didn't have the right to act like God by taking vengeance. Because of this, he could rest in God's hands with how he dealt with Saul. I called it giving room for repentance. He could, he could rest and deal righteously with Saul, leaving Saul in God's hands. And he could rest in God with how Saul dealt with him. If Saul's repentance proved to be genuine, it would be demonstrated. It would be borne out and produce good fruit. And the Lord would see, and the Lord would pay, repay righteousness. But there is a hint of warning in this. If Saul reneged on his words of repentance, the Lord would know this as well. Saul could not hide. And God would be the judge. David reminds Saul of how he had dealt honorably and righteously with him. For the Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. You've heard this theme over and over again. It, it seems to be the high point on the topo map of repentance. <laughs> In this case, it's the high point of, of, uh, of what he is doing with Saul. David had respect for God and respect for the office of the Lord's anointed. And by implication in saying this, he gives this guidance to Saul. Saul, you too should have respect for the office. And repentance should be manifested in the way that you deal with me as God's anointed. He was calling for works that were befitting of repentance. And finally, David summarizes it by putting his trust in the Lord. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord. As you're reading it, you might be expecting him to say, in your eyes, Saul. And he'd already said that or implied that. But he says... May my life be valued in the eyes of the Lord. Let him deliver me 
out of all tribulation. To which Saul responds, may, may you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also prevail. In other words, the conclusion of the matter of, uh, of this repentance is that David puts, his, puts all of this in God's hands. And he rests there. And in doing so, David was at peace. He had accepted Saul's repentance. He had made room for that repentance to bear fruit. He rests secure in the Lord, whether or not Saul's repentance is genuine, whether or not it is borne out. Commentator Phillips calls this David's reward. David's reward for his good faith and obedience to God's word was not relief from Saul's malicious pursuit, but rather a clean conscience before God and a resolved faith in God's vindication. Think about that. If David rested his hope on the change of his circumstance, if he rested his hope on Saul's repentance being genuine, if he rested his hope on the fact that, oh, uh, sure, I can go back with Saul and not fear for my life. He would be severely disappointed. And it wouldn't take long for that happen, to happen. But if he rested his trust as he did in the Lord, then it didn't matter what Saul did. It didn't matter that his circumstances didn't actually change. Because Saul does turn around and... Uh, still breathed threats against him. But his reward was a clean conscience before God and a resolved faith in God's vindication. So I'll apply this once more. What are we to make with Saul's repentance? Well, we do know the whole of the story, and so we can hear his words, but then see by the lack of his changed actions that his heart was not changed either. A true change of heart must be demonstrated by a new pattern of behavior. And it's that application that I will leave you with today. God is convicting you of sin. Repent. And that repentance is voiced and it is acted on. It is voiced by speaking to God, by going to Him as one you have offended and by speaking in this world to the one that you have offended. It is voiced by repenting of sin, and by repenting of specific sins specifically. By that I mean name them. Don't just say, oh, I'm sorry. But say what you're sorry for. 
and use the language of repentance. As Saul even demonstrates here, I sinned against you in my neglect. I sinned against you in my lie. I sinned against you by my anger at you. Acknowledge the foolishness of the, of your sins. Acknowledge the consequences that you've brought on yourself because of those. And resolve by God's grace to turn away from that sin because repentance is also acted on. Resolve by God's grace to turn away from what you have done, to put it to death. That's part of repentance, to hate your sin so much that you, you ask God's help in stomping that out in your life so that you never go back there and replace it with new obedience. And then take to heart that when you repent, that God will, re re uh, God will forgive. Christ himself invites you in this way. He invites you to come to him in repentance with the assurance that he will indeed forgive. And with the one you've offended, then work patiently and earnestly to live out that repentance, to live out your faith day by day with a new behavior, patience in rebuilding. By God's grace, I pray that you would take to heart this examination of repentance, that you would pray for a changed heart as God convicts you of sin, that you would demonstrate that changed heart, that you would demonstrate that repentance with a new pattern of behavior. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, God, may it be that as you convict us of our sins, that our repentance would be heartfelt and genuine, that we would cry out to you that you would purge us of our sins, that you would cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God, with David, we, we pray that that heartfelt repentance would, bear, uh, would, would bring us to you confessing our sins, we would do so with one another as well, that we would acknowledge the ways in which our actions have wounded one another. That we would come with, uh, with words of repentance and confession to those we have offended. Now, Lord, I pray that as you convict us, that you would also lead us to, uh, to, uh, to change our approach that we would put off what is old and put on what is new. May it be, O oh God, that you would renew us in righteousness, that would be part of your sanctification, that repentance and forgiveness would be a daily practice for us. But Lord, we know that we do sin. We know, O oh God, that if we say we do not sin, that we are liars and the truth is not within us. We also know, God, that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ, that we have Jesus, the sinless one, 
who has laid down his life to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, as we repent, we know that you have promised to forgive. May we hear that today. May we be reminded of that in our worship. May we be reminded that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And go from here forgiven, having received mercy, and therefore giving room for repentance in our lives around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We close with that psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, Selection D. Uh, Much more could be said, but uh, I'll call your attention to David's uh, request that God would hide his face from our sins, that he would erase our iniquities, that he would renew our hearts. There's heartfelt repentance that is given here. And you'll see it then uh, lived out uh, that he turns away from his sins and asks that he would be renewed in obedience. Here as well, that assurance of salvation that asks, oh God, may I be renewed in the joy of salvation. In the midst of the grief and sorrow over sin, may I be renewed as I've repented of my sins. So let's stand and sing Psalm 51D. Mm-hmm.